Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. As we continue to digest the escalating crisis in Ukraine, I am very fortunate to have the benefit of the expertise and analysis of my next guest, who has a great deal of experience uh, overseeing crises in foreign arenas. Ambassador Robert O'Brien was co-chair of the State Department's Public-Private Partnership for Judicial Reform in Afghanistan. He was Special Presidential Envoy for Hostage Affairs, and he was our nation's 28th National Security Advisor, uh, serving in the administration of President Trump. Uh, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Ambassador Robert O'Brien. Welcome to the podcast, Ambassador O'Brien. It's a real honor to have you here. Well, great to be back with you, Tanya. Thank you. Uh, tell us what you thought about President Zelensky's speech before Congress. Well, uh, listen, I think we're watching some, something, and I tweeted this out uh, recently, that I think we're watching a legend uh, that's being formed before our eyes. I mean, we often see these great figures in history, Davy Crockett or... Hector, and then I, I realized it didn't end very well for Hector or Davy Crockett. So, you know, and Troy, maybe I should change it to Charles de Gaulle. But we're seeing this this great leader emerge before before our eyes, and I believe the great men and great women can make a difference in history. And uh, whether it was Margaret Thatcher in the Falklands, or Winston Churchill, or George Washington, or Abraham Lincoln, uh, there, there are a lot of historians. It's it's not fashionable to talk about what great men and women can do, but. Uh, they talk about social uh, movements and demog demography and geography and uh, economics as being the things that move nations. But I think there there comes a point in time in the, the history of nations where a man or a woman can step up and make a difference. And I think we're seeing that with President Zelensky. And so I'm, <clears throat> it was great to see him address the joint session of Congress today. A lot of people are comparing it to Churchill addressing the joint session in uh, 1941. He's got a very tough task ahead of him. He's facing a brutal dictator in Vladimir Putin who's now switched from trying to decapitate the government and, and have a quick win in Ukraine to literally demolishing the whole country. And, uh, and so President Zelensky has got a, a tough road to hoe, but uh, gosh, he's showing panache and boldness and he's rallied the Ukrainian people uh, around him and, and God bless him. And I, I hope we can give him all the support he needs to, to save his country. The uh, World War II and Churchill analogy ambassadors are really Great one, because there was a point, uh, as you certainly know, when Americans had no appetite for entering into World War II, uh, notwithstanding what Hitler was doing in Europe. Do you think that Zelensky's address before Congress has the potential to kind of shift the momentum? Because there doesn't seem to be a lot of political will uh, to do more militarily in Ukraine thus far. Well, listen, I, the, the, I was in Ukraine in 2014 uh, observing their uh, parliamentary elections, and I got to know some of the Ukrainian uh, young people, and I was so impressed by them. And, and what, one of the things that they talked about was they didn't want Americans to come fight their war. I mean, unlike many other countries that want American troops deployed, uh, they, they want to fight their own war. And they, they, they're tough people. They'll take on the Russians, but they need the tools and the weapons to fight the war. And just like we did Lend-Lease with, with the UK and with, with Russia at the outset of World War II, we need to do something similar with Ukraine. We're giving them some aid, but not enough. They need fighter jets, and we've got those fighter jets in Poland. We need to get those MiG jets that the, the former Warsaw Pact countries flew, and we need to get those to Ukraine immediately. We need to get them some longer-range anti-aircraft missiles, the S-300, that the Czechs and, and Bulgarians and, and Romanians have. And so we need to give the, the Ukrainians the tools they need to fight their own war. We've got to be the arsenal of democracy here 
but I don't think we need U.S. troops, and I don't think they're asking for U.S. troops. But but we've been playing catch up so far on on how we try and deter Vladimir Putin. It hasn't worked yet. We need to get in front of this and and really give the Ukrainians what they need to defend themselves. What do you think the consequences of doing that would be, Ambassador? Uh, Vladimir Putin has indicated that supplying the Ukrainians with that type of military assistance would essentially result in a type of World War III escalation. Should we be prepared for that, do you think? Look, I don't think that Ukraine's a sovereign country and they can go out and buy weapons and get weapons to defend themselves. Uh, Russia decided to invade a sovereign country. And so uh, Ukraine can go out and get get the weapons it needs to defend itself. I don't think it's going to lead to World War III. I don't think Vladimir Putin is crazy, but I think he uses these threats to try and deter his adversaries uh, from doing things that, that would be harmful to Russia. So uh, again, he said if we put economic sanctions on, it would be World War III. He said if we gave him javelin missiles, it would be World War III. You know, so those are the sorts of threats he makes, and and he's making the threats because they've been effective so far. He's been able to deter the United States and the allies. From, from putting on full sanctions and from giving Ukraine what it needs to defend itself. We need to stand up to Putin. We need to let the Ukrainians have the tools they need to defend themselves. I don't think it's going to lead to World War III. Putin's been exposed for having a, a very weak army. We thought it was much stronger than it was. We thought it was an army that could roll through the Baltics and roll over American light, light infantry troops or, or mechanized brigades. Uh, I think we now see that uh, the Russian army has really been exposed. I think Putin knows that. And, and so I'm not really too concerned about his threats. I mean, we don't need to put American soldiers into conflict with Russian soldiers. I'm, a, I'm against that. But we can give the Ukrainians the tools they need. They have a right to it as a sovereign nation, and we should help them. Do you think the sanctions are effective? Are they having a deterrent effect? I mean, he's uh, Russia is still bombing uh, Ukraine. We are still seeing images of the type of savagery, uh, Ambassador. I mean, frankly, it, it, these images are hard to watch. It is hard to watch uh, people in the street being chased uh, by militaries. It's hard to watch a mayor be dragged off um, These and, and children being killed. Are these sanctions working? No, they, they didn't work to deter Putin because, uh, again, the, the, the administration was so con- concerned about provoking Putin that they didn't put a list of the tough sanctions out ahead of time. Though the way to deter Putin was to say, this is what's going to happen. You're going to be decoupled from the West. You're going to be cut off from the free world economy. The 35% of your imports that you get from the EU are going to be 100% cut off. You're going to import nothing from the EU or from the US. You're going to export nothing to the EU or US or to Australia or Japan or the rest of the free world. That's the sort of thing that would have given Putin pause before going in, but we didn't do that. And, and the rationale was we've got it. We don't want to provoke him. Now he's gone into Ukraine and we put sanctions on to punish him. But the sanctions are half measures. So they don't uh, cover oil and gas. The, the Russian banks can still participate in the SWIFT system as long as they're selling oil or gas or minerals. Well, the only thing Russia sells is oil or gas. When's the last time, Tanya, you went on Amazon and ordered that new thing from Russia? Like, Never. That never happened. Uh, the, the only thing people buy from Russia is oil and gas. And we've excluded that. So we, so Putin, every day that a dollar, the, the cost of a barrel of oil goes up a dollar, Putin makes billions. So he's making more money on the increased price of oil than he's losing on these half-measure sanctions. Boris Johnson, the prime minister of the UK, has called for a complete cutoff of the Russian central bank from the world banking system and, and from Russian banks from the SWIFT system. If we did that, that's the sort of thing that could have a deterrent effect, but we've been reticent to do it so far. The Ukrainians are running out of time. God bless them. We're, we're all so impressed by what we see, the courage. You know, seeing that 80-year-old man walk up to the recruiting station with his little bag of clothes and, and say he wanted to enlist in the army. 
I mean, God bless these people, but they can only hold out against the might of the Russian army for so long. They need help now. They need the tools to, to fight the war now, but they also need full sanctions on the Russians to, to so that the Russians understand that there are serious consequences. Right now, they, they're not getting that. You uh, just said that you don't think Vladimir Putin is crazy. Uh, I, I read his response, or at least part of it, part of his response to uh, President Zelensky's speech. He kept referring to the neo-Nazi Ukrainian government. Uh, there's been some suggestion uh, by others that the isolation of the pandemic and otherwise has uh, hampered him in some way. Uh, do you think that's true? Is he playing with a full deck? I, I think he's playing for a full deck. I think what we do is we, we don't listen to what the dictators say. Uh, we did this in, in the 30s. We didn't listen to what Hitler said. If we listened to what he said and stopped him, uh, we wouldn't have had World War II. Uh, we didn't listen to what the Kaiser was saying before World War I. Uh, we're not listening to what Putin's saying. Putin gave a speech several weeks ago where he, he said he was going to you know, not only take Ukraine, but take the Baltics back. And then he threw in Finland. And <laughs> I think the Finns woke up that morning and said, what the heck? How did we get lumped in with this? Uh, but, uh, you know, look, he's got grand ambitions to be the next Peter the Great. Uh, he wants to restore the Russian Empire and restore Russia to, in his, what you know, and, and it's a warped view, but his view of, of the glory of the Russian state. And we need to listen to what he's saying. He's not crazy. He's taking advantage of what he perceives as weakness in the West. And that there was ample evidence of that. He watched what happened in Afghanistan. He watched how craven the Germans were with Nord Stream 2. And he thought, I can get away with this. Just like I got away with Crimea in 2014 when President Obama said we were going to put strong sanctions on, on Russia, and then we never did. And so I think he thought he could get away with this. So I think he's, uh, you know, maybe he's crazy like a fox, but I think he's playing with a full deck. Now, he may not be getting good advice, and he may be reckless, and he may, may be exhibiting poor judgment. And I, and I think all of that is true. Uh, and he may be a killer, which I came out at the CPAC conference and, and said that, and I, I said this back in 2014, uh, long before I served as national security advisor, Putin's a killer. And we've got we've to stand up to him. I, and he's, a, you know, he's, he's, not a, he's not someone to be admired. Uh, but I don't think he's crazy. Do you think there's a scenario, Ambassador, where he will be tried for war crimes? No, I, I think the answer to that is no. And the reason is uh, Russia has a veto at the UN Security Council. And, and Russia also has nuclear weapons. And as long as Vladimir Putin does not leave Russia, it will be impossible for the, uh, the, the International Criminal Court to get jurisdiction over him. And the other thing is no, no European country, or, and probably not the U.S., is even going to think about arresting the Russian president putting him in jail when Russia has 1,250 nuclear you know, weapons pointed, strategic nuclear weapons pointed at the United States uh, and the West. So I think the odds of him being tried are, are very minimal, uh, if not zero. But I do think he, you know, th th there's certainly a case to be made. Uh, that, that That's a political issue, whether he'd be tried. As far as the legal issue, when you watch the indiscriminate shelling of civilians, this is not collateral damage. This isn't targeting military sites or facilities or bases and, and a missile goes awry and accidentally hits a, a civilian area. Uh, this is the deliberate wanton destruction of apartment blocks and civilian uh, areas that have no military value. And it's, it's the kind of barbarism that we saw in World War II. It's kind of the old siege mentality and that we remember from the Middle Ages when cities would be surrounded and destroyed and, and when the walls were breached, everyone would be killed inside the walls. That's the sort of thing we're watching that, that certainly would give a good prosecutor like you, Tanya, or, or, or someone else, uh, all, the, all the evidence they needed uh, to prosecute a war crimes case. So I think the evidence is there, but I, don't, I think the, the politics of 
of taking Vladimir Putin to custody and putting him in the dock like we saw in Nuremberg is, is probably pretty un- unlikely. Uh, we are seeing the sort of barbarism take place in real time. And you have talked about policies and tendencies and conditions in this country that you think have encouraged uh foreign aggression, Russian aggression. Tell us what you've meant by that. You suggested that there have been certain American weaknesses that have encouraged this. Uh, Explain to us what you mean. Well, look, I think there's a a straight line from some of the things that happened with the new administration. And and I think generally the the Biden administration has had strong policies on on Ukraine and on Taiwan and, and a number of these issues. In fact, many of the policies are the same policies that we had in the Trump administration. Folks don't like to talk about it, but they're policies that are generally good for America. But we, you and I have talked about this before, Tanya, weakness in foreign affairs is provocative. And, and when, the, when our adversaries view us as being weak, whether we are or not, and I don't believe America's weak, and I don't believe our, our policies have been necessarily weak, but there's a perception of weakness. And that perception of weakness is provocative. And, and, and so that's what concerns me. So you had really a botched withdrawal from Afghanistan that was a catastrophe. We lost the 13 Marines. We left Americans behind. We left our Afghan allies behind. We left $80 billion in military equipment behind. I mean, can you imagine how happy the Ukrainians would be if they had all the equipment that we'd left for the Taliban? I mean, that's uh, it, it's pretty amazing. So Vladimir Putin and, and Xi Jinping in Beijing watched our withdrawal from Afghanistan, and they decided that we were weak. They watched some of the things that were happening in America, the the open border and the southern border. And and it's not an issue of immigration. We can debate you know, who should be naturalized and who should we allow in and that sort of thing. But to have an uncontrolled access to this country on the southern border where we've got hundreds of thousands of people a month coming into America without even stopping to sign the guest book, um, that's not a, that, that's, that, that looks weak from overseas. When they see the smash and grab robberies and the homelessness of our cities, uh, that looks like America is in decline. And so our adversaries look at those things, whether it's foreign policy issues like Afghanistan or the fact that we we gave Russia Nord Stream 2 without asking for anything in return. We gave Russia the New START nuclear treaty extension without asking for anything in return, in return and without getting China uh, to commit to, to limiting their own nuclear weapons. All of these things together, both domestically and politically uh, overseas, lead to a perception of weakness. And, and I think Vladimir Putin, and, and, I, and I hope Xi Jinping is, is not going to follow, I uh, have thought that they have an opportunity, a window here to take advantage of the United States in a, in a, a period of U.S. decline. And, and that, that's been provocative, and it's, it's, it's in part led to what happened in, in Ukraine. Now, let me be clear. Ukraine is Vladimir Putin's fault. Vladimir Putin's a killer. He's a thug. He's a, he's a very bad actor, a malign actor on the international stage. And, and he invaded a neighbor just because he thought he could conquer them uh, with a, a might makes right type attitude that we haven't seen in international affairs for the most part, at least among the major powers since 1945. So he's responsible. But unfortunately, we, we in some ways, we set the stage for him to think he could get away with it. And uh, now we've got to make sure he doesn't get away with it and we start restoring uh, deterrence with, our, with respect to our adversaries. You've uh, called him a killer, uh, and I'm talking about Vladimir Putin. You said he's someone who's not to be admired. Uh, your former boss, uh, President Trump, did not think that. I mean, he, he's uh, on many occasions been incredibly laudatory of uh, Vladimir Putin and incredibly derogatory of our own leadership. I mean, he's called Putin smart. He's called American leaders dumb. Do you think that that also 
uh, or, or his posture. And again, I'm talking about President Trump's posture. I'm not talking about anything you've said. You, you've called him a killer. But President Trump uh, has been very laudatory of President Putin. Uh, when he was in office, he wanted to uh, uh, lift sanctions and did lift sanctions. And there was a bipartisan opposition uh, to that. Did his posture toward Russia and toward President Putin also help set the stage for this? You know, I, I don't I don't think so. And I think if you look at when we were in office, one thing Vladimir Putin didn't do, he didn't invade any other country. So under President Bush, and I served in the Bush administration, as you know, uh, President Putin invaded Georgia. Under President Obama, he invaded Ukraine and took Crimea. Under President Biden, he's now launched a full-scale attempt to conquer U Ukraine. Uh, under President Trump, he didn't move anywhere. And he knew that America was strong and, and was tough. And he didn't know what the response from President Trump would be. I mean, there was a a level of unpredictability with President Trump, I think discouraged adventurism by the Russians or by the Chinese uh, because they didn't know what, what President Trump would do. And, and that, that, that helped us deter him. Uh, the other thing is we put on more sanctions with the Russians than, than any other administration in history. And if you look at the, the big ones, Nord Stream 2, Nord Stream 2 is canceled and did not get completed. Uh, working with the, the Danes and our other European allies, we stopped Nord Stream 2 in its tracks and it was not gonna be completed. We pulled out of the Open Skies Treaty, which the Russians were cheating on, and, and we weren't, and we pulled out of it. We pulled out of the INF Treaty, which the Russians were cheating on, and which, which we didn't. So irrespective of what the president says, and I think people have misinterpreted in the media, I think the president's position is that Vladimir Putin is opportunistic, and he's clever, and he's cunning, and he's certainly running a Russian-first foreign policy. Uh, but that doesn't mean that you encourage Putin. He's also called Putin a killer. And uh, and, and so, so I think you have to look at the the policies of the Trump administration, which were extraordinarily strong and which deterred Putin and Xi and the Ayatollahs uh, from taking action against our allies uh, and, and compare that to the other presidents that have sandwiched uh, uh, President Trump and have had very different results. So uh, I know, folks, you know, I, I think the president's language is something that folks, you know, focus on, but I think you really have to look at his policies and what happened. And he's got an exemplary record as, as far as dealing with the Russians. Whereas uh, the folks who claimed he was a friend of Putin and claimed he was a, a Putin asset and that sort of thing uh, have had a very bad record. At the end of the day, uh, I know the media focuses on, on some of the comments the president's made, and, and I think in some ways taken him out of the former president has taken him out of context. I don't think his political foes want to really get in a, into a matchup of, of records on Russia because his was terrific and, and theirs hasn't been. On the whole, how do you think the Biden administration's doing? Uh, handling this crisis. Uh, you've had some bipartisan praise, or rather some some praise uh, as a Republican for what uh, has been happening on the other side. Uh, if you had to give the administration a grade, what would it be? You know, I hate to give a grade, but what I will say is the administration has some smart people working for him. Jake Sullivan, who took over my position, is a, is a very smart, competent, qualified guy. Tony Blinken, uh, Secretary of State, is is competent and and is, was prepared for the job. Lloyd Austin, I think, is doing a good job as, as Secretary of Defense. Uh, and, and I think the at least the old Joe Biden policies, President Biden policies, the old Scranton Joe, which is much more bipartisan, much more robust when it came to the use of American power, is one of the reasons he got elected. I think Americans thought they were electing a moderate Democrat uh, to be president. Uh, so, and, and they've done some good things rallying the West in response to the uh, uh, the invasion. I think they've done a very good job pulling our European allies together, uh, certainly getting the Germans back on side because the Germans have been offside with America for the last three or four administrations. 
and have been trying to position themselves as some sort of a in uh, a, a middle ground between Russia and China, the U.S. and uh, and the West. Uh, I think he's brought the Germans back. So I think I think there's some things to compliment him on. Uh, the 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 problem that I've got with the administration's policies is they're playing catch up, and so they eventually get to the right policy. It just takes them weeks and months to do it, and, and unfortunately, the Ukrainians don't have weeks or months. So we didn't put out a robust list of sanctions to to warn Vladimir Putin off an invasion. I think if we'd done that, it could have had an effect, but but the deterrence policy didn't work. It was too ambiguous. It was too timid. It was too aimed at avoiding provoking Putin. Once Putin invaded, I mean, he can't be provoked anymore. He's wiping out apartment buildings uh, with, with long-range howitzers. Uh, the sanctions have been a half measure, so they're not punishing Putin. Uh, we weren't going to give him you know, much in the way of military assistance. Now we're going to give him $13 billion in military assistance. That's good, but Again, all of this is is playing catch up, and I hope it doesn't come too little too late. Look, I think eventually the MiGs are going to get transferred to the the Ukrainians so that they can have their own no-fly zone. We don't need American pilots flying in a no-fly zone. If we give the the Ukrainians the planes they need, they can they can have their own combat aircraft protecting their people, and, and that's what we want. We want our allies to to bear the burden of their own defense. So I think we're going to get there. I think we're eventually going to follow Boris Johnson's lead on the the SWIFT sanctions and the central bank sanctions. So I, so I think the Biden folks eventually get there. I think they're focused on process and a lot of meetings and, and, and they're extraordinarily cautious. And, uh, and unfortunately, in this instance, it, it hasn't worked. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know. As far as a grade, I'd hate to give a, a grade. They're trying to get to the right place. It's just awfully slow. And I hope the Ukrainians can hold out long enough before the... Uh, so that the administration can catch up with the brave Ukrainian men and women who are fighting in the trenches. But you do think that the administration should be getting planes to Ukraine? I, mean, I, I would have done the whole thing differently, much quiet, much more quiet. I mean, we'd had, if Gina Haspel was still running the CIA, I think that the planes would have had Ukrainian flags painted on them, you know, a month ago, and Ukrainian pilots would have come to Poland and flown them to Ukraine, and the Poles would have said, "Hey, we sold them to an arms dealer. Maybe it was a Russian arms dealer, as far as we know. In fact, you could have probably found a Russian arms dealer who would have sold them and, and brokered the dealer deal for the Ukraine, and, and Putin would have probably got a cut of it. But uh, uh, you, you could have made that happen very quietly instead of making it. I think it was a failure of diplomacy the fact that it got so public. Uh, but I think eventually those planes, and I think the the S three hundred anti aircraft missiles uh, that some of the uh, the long range anti aircraft missiles that the Ukrainians desperately need." Uh, former Soviet bloc kit. Uh, we'll, we'll get to them. I, I just think it's taking, you know, again, it's Winston Churchill said America always does the right thing, but only after they've exhausted every other opportunity and, uh, and every other option. I think that's, that's, that's what we're, I think the Biden administration eventually gets to the right decision, but it, it takes them a while to get there. So I, I hope they, they speed up because I don't think the Ukrainians have a lot of time left. Let's uh, talk about China for a bit. Uh, China and Russia are getting increasingly close, uh, especially now. Do you think that we need to be worried about that relationship, especially given Russia's aggression in Ukraine? Absolutely. I mean, there are three you know, superpowers or, or, or countries that, that uh, would like to be superpowers in the world. You've got Russia, you've got China, and you've got the United States. And what underpins that are... are Geography, they're all three very large countries. Uh, their nuclear capability, they all have massive nuclear uh, triads. Uh, so they can, uh, any one of the countries could destroy the world, uh, which is a, a sobering and dangerous thing, but uh, something we have to keep in mind when we deal with these countries. And, uh, you know, number three, they've had, they, they've had either strong economic or diplomatic or economic uh, uh, 
power that allows them to play in the superpower game. Now, there, there's an argument that Russia is more of a regional power, but I think their large nuclear arsenal certainly puts them in the in the uh, the big geopolitical game. So if you've got those three balls in the air, it's not good to have two of the balls aligned against us. So we've always tried to split Russia and China. That's one of the reasons Nixon went to China in the early 70s, was to pull China out of the Russian sphere of influence. That, that had happened because there had been a, uh, a schism between uh, Mao and Stalin and, and, and later Mao and the... Uh, uh, the later Russian leaders, Khrushchev and and uh, and Brezhnev and others, but uh, we pulled China out of that uh, communist orbit and changed the geopolitical dynamic. Now we have China and Russia uh, engaged in what they call an unlimited friendship, an unlimited partnership, uh, where they're supporting each other to try and destroy the post-World War II uh, international uh, settlement uh, that the United States had led. And so uh, we need to do our best to rally our allies, and we're doing that. And I think you know, one of the things the Biden administration has done well that I, I commend them on is in the Asia-Pacific region, they focused on the Quad, which is a, a political arrangement between uh, Japan, India, Australia, and the United States. But but more needs to be done there as well. We need to turn that into a military alliance to, to counterbalance China and to give the other countries in Asia hope that they won't be dominated by China, but that there, there's a free world, a free a free market alternative for them. We have to be very, we have to be very concerned about China and Russia getting together, and 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 China certainly watching what's happening in Ukraine. But there are things we can do, and and India is coming into its own as a major power. President Modi uh, is a friend, and 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 you know has has led the Indian people well, and that's a billion four people, a massive economy. They need to open up more. But when you take Europe and India and America and Japan and Australia. You know, we're we're a pretty strong. You know, the, the free world's pretty strong as well. So we can stand up to the Russians and the the Chinese, but it's going to take a lot of effort. Do you think that, given this uh, all-encompassing friendship, or uh, however they've described it, that China's going to come more directly to Russia's aid? I know that uh, the United States, the Biden administration, has warned against that, but. Do you think those warnings will be effective? Well, I I don't think they're particularly effective. Uh, at this point, I mean, we, we, I think we've exhibited a little bit of naivete in thinking that we can, you know, just have one or two meetings with the Chinese or threaten them with sanctions. I mean, China has a big economy. The, the, the most effective thing we could do with the Chinese to deter them from helping the Russians, and they're going to help. They're already buying more oil from the Russians. I hope they don't send them military hardware and equipment for the, uh, the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, we've got to try and deter that. And, and sanctions with, with some of the Chinese companies that would be involved may, may be helpful there. Uh, but look, what, what Xi Jinping is looking at is how is the West going to respond to the invasion? And I've said there, there are, are several things we need to do. Number one, we need to strengthen NATO. And the Finns and Swedes, which are both neutral, but have very capable militaries and very capable intelligence services, have been threatened by the Russians directly by Putin now. And they're, they're paying attention to what Putin says. Bringing Sweden and Finland into NATO should be our number one priority in NATO. Putin is trying to weaken NATO by invading Ukraine. We need to say we need to show Putin that he strengthened NATO, and now you've got Sweden and Finland uh, involved, and that'll be very helpful to us in the Arctic area of our operations. That's something China is going to look at and say, "Wow, not only did the West not buckle when Ukraine was was invaded, it got stronger, and the alliance became stronger, and we could end up with a, a Asian NATO, uh, the Quad being the the the, the foundation of it uh, on our doorstep if we invade Taiwan." Number two, they're looking at. Uh, how it's going to affect Russia economically. If Russia is entirely cut off from the world markets, or at least from the free markets, 
uh, that's going to be devastating to the Russian economy. It may not affect them in the short term, but in the long term, Russia is going to become poorer. Its middle class is going to lose half of its its members, and, and Russia is going to pay a penalty. China doesn't want to pay that kind of penalty. China is not a big enough market to go it alone. It has to export to the U.S., to Japan, to Europe, uh, for it to make the massive amounts of money it needs to bring 20 to 30 million people a year into its middle class. And that's how the Communist Party stays in power and keeps its people happy, is by bringing Chinese into the middle class. If they realize, wait a minute, we're going to be cut off from the free world, and we won't be able to export all our, our electronics or uh, rare earths or whatever it is that they, they want to export, uh, and instead, you know, fishing poles to Walmart, uh, instead we're going to have a market of Russia, Iran, and us, that's not very attractive to Xi Jinping. And then thirdly, as he sees us supply the Ukrainians and sees the Ukrainians fight back and, and kill and capture thousands and thousands of Russians, if he understands that Taiwan is going to get the same sort of support from the U.S. and from the West, that they're going to have the weapons they need to defend themselves, that it's not going to be a walk in the park to take over Taiwan, that's another thing that will, will discourage them. So we need to arm Taiwan and make sure they get everything they need now before, an inv- before a Chinese invasion to deter them. So I think Xi Jinping is looking at those three things, the strength of NATO, the economic issues, and, and the supply of, of Ukraine. And he's taking that into account as he decides what to do with Taiwan and, and, and how much to support Russia. I, I don't think the meetings are particularly helpful. I don't think the threats are helpful. I think action is what uh, Xi Jinping and, and Vladimir Putin look at. So you think on the whole, uh, this Russian aggression in Ukraine has been, uh, I mean, if you had the hazard, if you had to characterize it, would you suggest it's been a disincentive to China invading Taiwan? Because as they look at the tea leaves, it, they can kind of figure out that it wouldn't be uh, an easy run. And unlike Russia, China is someplace that we buy stuff from on Amazon. Yeah, yeah. no, I, no. I, I look, I think you just answered your own question. I think that's... Uh, I think that's good analysis, and I, it's still too early to tell, but I think right now, I think the Chinese, and I think a lot of people have been surprised that, at number one, the resilience of the Ukrainians, led by President Zelensky, in fighting the Russians and, and putting up a hell of a fight. And, and I mean, this has not been easy for the Russians, but you know, the Ukrainians are paying a price for it because the Russians are now punishing them by killing you know, the wanton destruction of cities and, and killing civilians in response to the resistance. Uh, but I think that's been a shock. And I also think that the fact that even though the sanctions are half measures, uh, they're, they're pretty big half measures. And so I think that's those, those are things that the Chinese would not want to have applied against them. So I, I think the early reaction from the Chinese, who I thought, who I, I believe, thought that uh, Putin would have a quick victory, suffer limited economic blowback because of the, the dependence of Europe on, on his oil and gas, uh, this, I think they, they were looking at this as somewhat of a model for Taiwan. Now I think there's there are probably second thoughts in the Politburo and in the Central Committee as they watch this crisis unfold. It doesn't look great for the Russians right now, but, but again, things could change. We'll have to see how it plays out. You've suggested that the United States should be preparing for a Ukrainian government and exile. Do you think we should still be prepared for that contingency? Absolutely. And, and again, it's one of those things that I think the Biden administration will get to, but I think we should announce it now. So to, to tell the Russians, look, even if you're able in, in a month, six months, a year to capture Kiev, even if you kill Zelensky, uh, uh, even if you take martial control, military control of the country, we're going to recognize whatever Ukrainian government officials can escape. We're going to recognize a government in exile in Warsaw or London, just like we did with the, the governments of the Netherlands and Belgium and 
and France in World War II, we're going to recognize a government in exile in, in Ukraine, just like we recognize governments in, in World War II. And that will be, the, and we'll refer to Ukraine as occupied Ukraine. You, you guys are going to be the Germans. Uh, you're going to be the Nazis. You like to call people, other people Nazis. You guys are going to be the occupying power. We're going to recognize a government in exile. And that government will have all of the legitimacy uh, uh, and the support of the Ukrainian people. And whatever puppet you put into place in Kiev is going to have no legitimacy and can't do any business you know, with the rest of the world. All business with Ukraine will have to go through the government in exile. And I think that's, again, a huge political disincentive to Putin, you know, trying to do, you know, I think Putin thought he was going to roll in, take over Kiev, put in a puppet and, and, and run things, uh, letting him know now that that's never going to be accepted. And, and we're not going to, we won't go back to business as usual with one of his, his cronies in, in Kiev. We'll, we'll let him know that this is not going to be over soon. How do you see this ending, Ambassador? You know, I, I hope it ends well. I hope I hope the Ukrainians uh, uh, continue to to wear down the Russians. I don't like the fact that the Russians are bringing in uh, Iranian proxies from Syria uh, into Europe to come uh, destroy cities. These are the same people that destroyed Aleppo and, and other wonderful cities in Syria and then reduced them to rubble. The, the Russians are now trying to bring them in to fight the Ukrainians. But I'm telling you, the Ukrainians have shown to be uh, people of resilience, of boldness, of daring, panache. The esprit de corps among their, their military has been strong. So I, I would love to see them roll back, not only stop, but to roll back this Russian invasion. And hopefully Putin would come to his senses and, uh, and, and decide he doesn't want to have Russia become a, you know, a, a, a rogue state that, where his people are welcome nowhere in the world and where he has a, a small economy. And, and maybe we can get to a, a peaceful resolution. That's my hope. But the, you know, the alternative is, and if we don't supply the Ukrainians with what they need, the alternative is a Ukraine that's flattened and destroyed the way that they destroyed Chechnya or the way they destroyed much of uh, the Russians destroyed much of Syria with cities just absolutely flattened and, and refugees everywhere and, and hardship and, and, and sadness for the Ukrainian people. So it could, it could, we don't know how it's going to end. It could go either way, but I, I always, I hope and, and pray for the best. And, uh, and, and I, I'm rooting like, like heck for the, uh, the Ukrainian people to, to win this one. Ambassador, uh, you have such a perspective and such a depth of insight uh, on this issue and on how we're positioned in the world uh, today. So I really have to thank you uh, for being so generous with your time and your analysis. And, um, you know, it's dark. Like I've got the TV on behind me. The news is dark. The images that we're seeing from Ukraine are dark. There's a lot of pessimism in the United States right now uh, as people are struggling to pay bills, as people are struggling to fill their tanks. But um, I can't let you go because I know a little bit about you and I know a little bit about uh, your perspective on some other things and your views about uh, this very great country of ours. So I can't let you go without uh, hearing from you about something that makes you hopeful. What about what are you optimistic? What makes you optimistic these days, Ambassador? That, that's a great question because we, we always talk about bad news on these uh, on these podcasts and TV hits and that sort of thing. But look, I think that the good news is is that the fundamentals of America are strong. Uh, if you had to choose where to live anywhere in the world people still want to come to the United States of America. I mean, it's a, no, no one's climbing into the wheel well of an airplane at LAX, as bad as things might get in LA from time to time, and, and trying to get on a plane and get out of California to go to, to go to China or to go to some other place. I mean, and even the Chinese, if you look at the Chinese Communist Party leaders, 
All of their kids are going to USC and UCLA and Harvard. They all have homes in San Marino. Uh, they, they've got their bolt holes because they want their families to, 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 to live here, at least have some connection to America. So I, I, I feel like Ronald Reagan did that we're the last best hope on earth and uh, for, for mankind. And, and I think that remains the case and will be. Look, we go through tough times as a country. We've, you know, there, there were dark days at Valley Forge and the Revolutionary War when we were taking on the world superpower in the UK. And, and if anyone would have bet on the, uh, the, the odds against us were, were tremendous. And we had the Civil War, which was traumatic and, and almost wrecked our country. And, and, and yet we got through that. And, and a million people laid down their lives for the noble principle that, uh, for, for, free, for freedom and for all people of all races. We went through you know, Vietnam. We went through the Civil Rights Movement. We lost the Kennedy brothers and Dr. King. We've gone through tough times. We went through the, the, the tough years of, of the Carter years uh, in, in the late 70s. And, uh, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and Nicaragua and Cuba and, and uh, Angola and, and all the, the trouble we had, the, the, the Iranian hostage crisis. And then Ronald Reagan was elected and America came, came roaring back. And, and, so we, and we ended up winning eight years later, we won the Cold War. And, and you know, although Russia uh, has, has slid backwards, Poland and the Czech Republic and Slovakia and Romania and Bulgaria, places that were all firmly behind the Iron Curtain are, are free even today. And so, so look, I think that we're having some tough times now. We've got global challenges, but I would never bet against the United States of America. And uh, look, I, I know you feel the same way, Tanya. You've been a great supporter of the U.S. Navy and, and our men and women in uniform. And uh, we, we've got the, the greatest folks defending us, the, the men and women and, and, and young people that, that are on the frontiers of freedom that are, that are protecting us are, are still there and they're, they're strong. And we've got the, the best weapon systems and best platforms. And and America likes winners, and it doesn't matter if you're a Republican or Democrat. You want this country to win. So, so I think we'll get through these these tough times. But but as you point out, this is one of those challenging periods with Iran and with with China and with with Russia, you know, all on the march, and and you know, jihadis and terrorists that are they're out there. Uh, they're challenges, but don't don't bet against the United States of America. We're we're going to win, and uh, and freedom will prevail in the long run. Our American family may be imperfect, but we are going to make it. Thank you, Ambassador. Uh, there, 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 there's so much uh, for which we should be grateful and to appreciate, and um, we're going to make it. Thank you for your time. Uh, this has been such a wonderful conversation. I think that you've provided a lot of information and insight uh, in a really clear way that um, will be useful to people as we try to process uh, the carnage and destruction uh, that we see taking place. Um, you know, we, we, uh, we're, we're all rooting for freedom and democracy. Thank you. Well, thank, thanks for having, having me on, Tanya. God bless you and, and pray for the people of Ukraine. We certainly will. Thank you. Thank you.